Christmas during times of war. On Christmas Eve 1914, a spontaneous ceasefire was observed across the whole of the Western Front. What's been known now as the Christmas Truce, which for many, many years was declared a fiction and a myth and legend and fake news, and no, it never happened. But uh, now the Christmas Truce is accepted as historic fact. The Christmas Truce in the First World War was an extraordinary event in the, event, uh, in the history of warfare. Initially, it received a lot of media coverage. The New York Times of 31st December 1914, followed by British newspapers like The Mirror, The Illustrated London News, The Times, The Daily Mail, printed front-page photographs of British and German troops mingling and singing Christmas carols. Christmas <coughs> Truce at the front. Snowballs and jokes with the foe. And historic group, British and German soldiers photographed together. And Illustrated London News shows the light of peace in the trenches of the Christmas Eve. A German soldier opens the spontaneous truce by approaching the British lines with a small Christmas tree. And there was quite a bit of reports on this, and <coughs> it was considered as one of the great Christmas miracles and Christmas gifts. But the French government was the first to severely censor any reports of what they called fraternization with the enemy. And interestingly, in 2014, on the 100th anniversary of the outbreak of the First World War, I was invited to Britain for a series of lectures and I went to the Imperial War Museum and saw the Christmas truce being openly acknowledged at the Imperial War Museum with photographs of German and British troops celebrating Christmas together. Now, considering this was um, a forbidden topic and you weren't allowed to report on it and they damned you for uh, fake news and their fact checkers had said, no, it never happened. Now, the Imperial War Museum has these kind of exhibits. By the end of 1914, exhausted armies had sought safety in trenches. In the opposing front lines, men endured the same wretched conditions, often with an earshot of one another. At Christmas, British and German soldiers emerged to meet in a frozen strip of mud between the trenches. They sang carols and exchanged presents from cigarettes and cigars to buttons and badges. And the Christmas truce has gotten a lot more attention in recent years. Again, from the British Imperial War Museum, Hate propaganda against the wicked Hun began as soon as Britain went to war. The press was full of tales of German atrocities, both real and imagined. In this poisonous atmosphere, angry crowds smashed windows of shops owned by Germans, British authorities, and turned German men in camps. Sadly, not just in Britain, they did that in South Africa as well, even in Cape Town. It was, according to a poem by Rudyard Kipling, the time when the British began to hate. And they were taught to. Uh, reports of German atrocities were often lurid and false. This includes stories of mutilated nuns, butchered babies, but people were all too ready to believe them. In Britain, there was a cleansing of all things German or German-sounding. London's Coburg Hotel was renamed the Konart. German shepherd dogs became Alsatians. German measles became Belgian thrush. Orchestras stopped playing Beethoven and Wagner. Almost like how they're treating Russian right now, that Ceausescu's band and Russian tennis players can't play in uh, Britain and things like that, this kind of hysteria. Political pressure was brought to bear to censor all reports of the event from the mainstream history books for decades. For years, this extraordinary event was known only by word of mouth from participants. And I remember meeting some people who spoke about this in Rhodesia and at different moth meetings. So I heard people talking about the Christmas truce personally, but I'd never read about it in any history books. So, you, know, you heard about it from people who were there, but there was just this question mark like, did it really happen? Because why don't we read about this in any history books? The damage caused by the Christmas truce to propaganda campaigns to demonize the enemy was regarded as a serious threat to the war. It's taken decades to unearth the details of the fascinating events surrounding Christmas 1914. Here's an article in the Daily Express in Britain about a man who heard what his grandfather said, and when his grandfather died, he went into attic, got a lot of his diaries and books, and he, he read in his leather-bound diary, December 19... Uh, 14, his first account, and so he did a lot more research and ended up publishing a book on it called Meet at Dawn Unarmed. And then magazines started, especially on the 100th anniversary of the First World War, 2014, they started to bring out <coughs> all kinds of stories with people had unearthed from the attics, from their grandparents and letters maybe that had been sent home and their grandma had kept, and now they're reading about the Christmas truth. And so articles start to be published 100 years after the event, Christmas Miracle, True Story of 1914, Temporary Truce. 
books start to be produced. Silent Night, a move, moving story of horror taking a holiday. The story of the World War I Christmas truce. And the backdrop is in the first five months of the Great War, over a million Europeans had already been killed in action. Most of those from artillery. Artillery was the main killer in the First World War. 80% of people died from the artillery. And, you know, many people think, well, poison gas is a big killer. Well, that didn't even account for 2% of the deaths in the First World War. Artillery was the main thing, which is why when I went to Ypres, I saw lots and lots of Hammond's names on the walls. And when a soldier's name's on the walls, it means they couldn't find a body, so they don't have a grave. So names on the walls meant they were unrecognizable. And that's why, in fact, I counted 65 Hammonds on the walls just in the uh, Ypres area. So I went to the British and Co Commonwealth War Graves Commission, and they went on their computer and said, 480 Hammonds died in the First World War. And that's a lot for just one family. The initially fast-moving campaigns had degenerated into static trench warfare with a continuous front line of barbed wire trenches running from the North Sea to the Swiss frontier. Emily Hoppus was the most prominent campaigner against British involvement in the First World War. This famous Englishwoman, Emily Hoppus, who had exposed to the world the horrors of Lord Kitchener's scorched earth campaigns here against the Boer republics of the Transvaal and Orange Free State and the horrors of the <coughs> British concentration camp, South Africa, which was pretty severe, how they would they destroyed 30,000 farmhouses in the Transvaal and the Free State, killed hundreds of thousands of cattle, sheep, um, horses, destroyed people's um, heirlooms, blew up some farms just out of sheer vindictiveness, and pictured themselves doing it, literally uh, burning churches. And these are pictures that Emily Hobhouse documented, like this Dutch form church in Fencesburg burned by the British forces. Why do you need to burn a church? And then on 2nd of February 1902, British column burnt down the church in Lindley. Uh, Novels Pont concentration camp. Absolute wilderness, no trees, no shade, just bell tents, canvas, and one of the coldest winters in South African history. And they're putting families in these concentration camps in these horrible little tents. And there's no shade in the area. It's just horrific. Too hot in summer, too cold in winter. And these are some of the subtitles given to Emily Hoppus to some of the pictures she documented. Children, mothers, grandparents being locked up, and then orphans. Huge amounts of orphans, um, as Emily Hoppus wrote, the innocent casualties of war. So Emily Hoppus became a great friend of South Africa, and now uh, she had documented how these so-called refugees were actually called by the British prisoners of war who'd be shot if they tried to move. Um, and yet they were trying to tell the British public, no, these are refugees that we are caring for. Emily Hompas did sketches to document churches burned down, farmhouses destroyed, the uh, graveyards, and the plight of families having their homes destroyed and just being forced to walk, in many cases barefoot, to the concentration camps where they were put in the most horrific conditions, and those who had male relatives in the field as commandos were given half rations, deliberate policy. If your grandfather, uncle, brother, father, husband were in the field fighting, then they were given half rations, half of what you should have gotten, and that meant it was starvation rations. And the people were dying at such a rate, Emily documented, 250 per thousand died a year. That meant in four years, every inhabitant of the camps would be dead. They had a worse rate of survival at the British concentration camps in Anglo-Boer War than any camps in the Second World War on any side. So 25% uh, death rate a year is absolutely horrific. And uh, there's a film out called That English Woman on the true story of Emily Hobhouse. Hard to get hold of if you can find it. Let me know because we'd like to have it in the library here. In 1914, Emily Hompas authored the open Christmas letter calling for peace. 101 British women signed Emily Hompas' open le Christmas letter, which was endorsed by 155 prominent German and Austrian women in response. Under the heading, On Earth Peace, Goodwill Towards Men, 
Emily Hobhouse wrote, Sisters, the Christmas message sounds like mockery to a world at war, but those of us who wished and still wish for peace may surely offer a solemn greeting to such of you as feel as we do. She mentioned that as in South Africa during the Anglo-Boer War, the brunt of modern war falls upon non-combatants, and the conscience of the world cannot bear the sight. And it was signed by a whole lot of very prominent people, including uh, Ms. Pankhurst, who's famous for fighting for the vote uh, for women, and some other very prominent women in British society. Is not our mission to preserve life? Do not humanity and common sense alike prompt us to join hands with the women and urge our rulers to stave off further bloodshed? May Christmas hasten that day. The German mothers responded, to our English sisters, sisters of the same race, a warm and heartfelt thanks for Christmas greetings. Women of the belligerent countries, with all faithfulness, devotion and love to their country, can go beyond it and maintain true solidarity with the women of other belligerent countries. That really civilized women never lose their humanity. Emily Hophaus oversaw the raising of funds and shipping of food and medicines through neutral countries to Austria and Germany where children were starving and the British naval blockade was quite harsh. These dark areas are where the British mined the seas, which is in breach of the Geneva Convention, the Hague Conventions of Warfare too. You're allowed to search vessels for weapons of war, but it was never allowed before the First World War that you could blockade people of even food on the high seas. So this was a war crime, but nevertheless, uh, and in the British Imperial War Museum I saw and took this picture, of starving children in Vienna, Austria. And so the, the British Imperial War Museum now admits, yes, people were starving, children were starving as a result of the blockade, the Royal Navy blockade on Germany. And of course, Germany did not have enough, being such an industrialized nation, didn't have enough food to feed its people without its ships bringing in food from the colonies and from overseas. So because of her work, many thousands of people were fed. Um, because of the starvation caused by the blockade, and she is able to channel support to them through neutral countries like Sweden, the Netherlands, and Switzerland. Numerous ministers started to proclaim from the pulpit that the guns may fall silent at least upon the night when the angels sang. And these messages were officially rebuffed and suppressed, and the media was heavily censored. But many of the soldiers on the front line seemed to share these sentiments, whether they heard about Emily's letter or these sermons by different pastors or not. They certainly seem to share their opinions. So from the first week of December, informal truces were being observed by soldiers on the front line. In a letter dated 7 December 1914, Charles de Gaulle expressed his dismay at the fraternization with the enemy, where French and German troops exchanged newspapers, recovered their dead, and organized burial parties in no man's land. French General de Urbel expressed alarm over soldiers staying too long in the same sector because they became friendly with their enemies and started to conduct conversations between lines, sometimes even visited one another's trenches. After heavy rains near Ypres, where the Germans held the high ground and the British had the lower ground, the English troops came out of their flooded trenches in full view of the Germans who expressed their sympathy but didn't open fire on their soaked and vulnerable enemies. The 2nd Essex Regiment recorded on the 11th of December in their war diary that their officers and men met the German Saxon Corps halfway between the trenches, exchanged food, cigarettes, chocolates and conversations. Now, the people back at home had promised the war would be over by Christmas, so there was suddenly this outpouring of concern for the troops before Christmas, and the Kaiser ordered vast amounts of Christmas trees to be shipped, that there was almost a Christmas tree for every two metres uh, along the front line. The British shipped pies and all sorts of things to the front, the French organised wine, and there was all kinds of parcels coming to troops at the front, including winter willies and uh, King George even had printed a card with our best wishes for Christmas 1914. May God protect you and bring you home safe. Well, Christmas Eve, the Germans start to decorate the trenches with Christmas trees and candles, which they had plenty. The vast quantity of railways that were conscripted to bring the Christmas trees to the front just boggles the mind. But that was their priority. Every soldier's got to have access to a Christmas tree. So the Christmas trees began in the region of Ypres, Belgium where the Germans were enthusiastically singing Christmas carols in their trenches. When the British soldiers joined in singing Silent Night, they then responded with carols of their own, and the two sides began shouting Christmas greetings to each other. So here's one letter from a soldier. 
They finished their carol, and we thought we ought to retaliate in some way, so we sang the first Noel. When we finished that, they all began clapping, and then they struck up another version of theirs, O Tauenbaum, and so it went on. At first, the Germans would sing one of their carols, and we would sing one of ours, and when it, we started up, O Come All Ye Faithful, the Germans immediately joined in singing the same hymn to the Latin words, Adest Fidelis. And I thought, well, this is really an extraordinary thing. Two nations both sing the same carol in the middle of a war. Shortly after that, the soldiers spontaneously came out of their trenches, walked across no man's land to greet each other, and exchanged gifts and souvenirs, as the London Illustrated News documented. The truth rapidly spread across the whole Western Front, with over 100,000 British and German troops involved in this unofficial cessation of fighting. And here's a note that somebody found in the attic from their grandfather, Xmas 1914, a friendly chat with the enemy. And it gets a bit confusing because they're often swapping hats. So you might have a British soldier wearing a German hat or a German soldier wearing a British hat. It gets very confusing. Soon Australians and New Zealanders, Canadians, Belgians, French troops joined in the Christmas celebrations in this frozen strip of no man's land. They had joint worship services. Respectful burial services were conducted by the combatants for the dead between their lines. And you can see some modern metal frames that have been put up in no man's land, like this man who died on the 10th of November, but they only buried him on Christmas Day. The soldiers ration, swapped ration packs, wine, pies, chocolate, souvenirs, buttons, badges, and hats. It was generally reckoned the French made the best wines, the uh, British made the best pies, uh, the Germans made the best chocolates, and the British made the best sweets. And so there was this kind of exchanging of things around in hats and badges. And there's all kinds of reports that uh, this was in the graphic. Parsees and Copland's English and Saxon officers photographed together between the hostile trenches. British and Germans exchanged gifts during Christmas truce on the firing line. So these were reported in the newspapers. And uh, some of these pictures show you the kind of confusion where you can see the people swapping hats and, and outfits uh, between themselves. So the mix of uniforms gets quite confusing. The picture's been doctored a bit up later to try and make the more faded newspaper picture easier to see. Non-commissioned officers were souvenirs of Christmas Day truce. Of course, the British loved these spiked helmets that came from the Prussians, which must have been a very popular souvenir. The next day, football matches were played between the lines, and British officer Robert Grays wrote of the football match between the 133 Saxon regiments and the Scottish troops. And the Germans won 3-2, he reported. The Glasgow News, 2nd of January, reported the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders won their match 4-1. And Royal Artillery Officer Lieutenant Wynne wrote of their soccer match against the Hanoverians near Ypres on Christmas Day. They even produced um, memorial coins on this in 2014. Commanders threatened repercussions for lack of discipline. Numerous officers ordered the artillery to open fire on the fraternizing troops in no man's land, which of course would kill their own men as well. And on every occasion, the artillery refused to obey these orders. The numerous complaints on record of officers shocked at the total breakdown of discipline. Men point blank refused orders to open fire on their own soldiers mingling with the enemy in no man's land on Christmas Day. The officers ordered the men open fire with their Vickers machine guns on the troops in the middle which would include their own troops, and the men just said, no, we can't do this. So there was something that stopped everyone. General Sir Horace Smith Dorian commanded the British Second Corps, and he was one of the very few British survivors of the Battle of East Rwanda during the Anglo-Zulu War of 1879, and Smith Dorian was in charge of the British in the whole Ypres region. He issued orders forbidding fraternization of the enemy, complained his orders were disregarded by the soldiers. Richard Sherman was so impressed by the camaraderie experience between his German regiment and the French troops during the Christmas truce. They even exchanged addresses with one another. He went on to found the Youth Hostel Association in 1919 to provide meeting places where young men of all countries could get to know one another, just like they had done. Now, you may think this is a Western Front phenomenon, but recent uh, research has found that it happened on the Eastern Front as well. In fact, interesting differences on the Western Front, it was spontaneous in spite of orders from the higher-ups against it. On the, on the Eastern Front, the officers in command ordered a Christmas truce. So on both sides, you had the Germans, the Austrians, 
the Hungarians, the Russians, their commanders ordered a ceasefire for their whole duration of Christmas, starting with 24th of December, going through to the 6th of January, because the Russians celebrate Christmas later. So in respect of Christmas on both sides, the officers commanded no hostile actions, only fire fired upon. You're not allowed to initiate hostile actions, but you may respond if you are attacked. And so across the entire Eastern Front, there was a ceasefire, with the exception of Serbia. The Serbs didn't observe it, but they were a bunch of terrorist, rabble-rousing um, rogue nation. They had started the First World War by sponsoring the assassins who killed the Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sophie. So the Serbs were not interested. They kept fighting, so the Austrians had to fight on the Serbian front. But the Russians, the Germans, the Austrians observed strictly a ceasefire for two weeks, covering the Western and the Eastern Orthodox calendar of Christmas. And on the snow, Russians and Austrians dancing, can you imagine? Numerous French and British officers were court-martialed for participating in what they called fraternization with the enemy. And whole units had to be pulled back from the front and sent to other fronts when they displayed reluctance to fire on the enemy that they'd celebrate Christmas with. And there was many of them that would no longer fight the enemy. Numerous artillery units began to fire only at precise locations at prearranged times to avoid causing casualties. They'd even send messages, sorry, we've got to open fire at this time, from this time to that time, but we will avoid this area, make sure you're not in that area. And so there was arrangements made between the trenches and they'd run across and give messages so, you know, we've got to open fire, but we'll make sure we're only firing at that location, make sure none of you are there. And there were even times that units would come and, and so they knew that the British are going to open fire on the German lines, invite the German troops to come to the British lines, and they sheltered in their trenches until that was over. And then after that, the German counterattack was ordered, so they had the French coming over and hiding in the German trenches. So there was all kinds of fraternization of the enemy that flowed out of Christmas. Many instances of soldiers firing high and ineffectually were reported where they ordered to open fire, that open fire, shooting over the heads of the enemy, not aiming to hurt anyone. So this was so bad, the British pulled whole units and shipped them off to fight in Iraq and on um, other fronts. And the Germans had to take huge amounts of units and ship them off the Eastern Front because they were <coughs> no longer willing to fight the people they just celebrated uh, Christmas with. So it really undermined the war effort. In 1915, there was an attempt to have the, East, the Sunday truce, uh, sorry, in Easter 1915, there was an attempt by German units to initiate um, an Easter Sunday truce, but that was suppressed by British artillery fire. And in November 1915, a Saxon unit briefly fraternized with the Liverpool Battalion conducted burial services together. December 1915, there were explicit orders directed by Allied commanders elaborate procedures made to forestall any repeat of the previous Christmas truce. And even the multiple artillery barrages ordered across the entire front line throughout Christmas Day by the British were not completely effective, and there still were a number of truces observed on the Western Front Christmas 1915. In some sections of the Western Front, Carol's gifts were exchanged between German and British troops in 1915. At least one football match was recorded where 50 soldiers on each side played football. That must have been quite a match. And there's some pictures celebrating the 1915 Christmas truce as well. So Ian Callaghan of the Scots Guards was court-martialed for defying orders by maintaining a short truce to bury the dead between their lines on Christmas Day 1915. But because he is related to British Prime Minister H.H. Eskers, this punishment was commuted. Now he would have got the death penalty because this was considered mutiny, but because he had the right connections he escaped. German attempts to observe Christmas truces December 1916 and 1917 were rebuffed by British artillery barrages, and yet recent evidence has come to light of a successful Christmas truce in 1916. The Germans and Canadians near Vimy Ridge exchanged Christmas greetings and presents, and the Canadians and Germans visited one another's lines on 25 December 1916. And here's somebody's report, um, again somebody finding this in a letter in the attic that was sent to Grandma and showing a star like a star shell fired from the German to light up no man's land. The sentry's quite safe from observation as he keeps still. Um, patience between, um, sorry, distance between German and British lines, uh, about 100 yards. Excellent Christmas dinner. Um, 
in a communication trench and then says both sides stopped fighting on Christmas Day. We did patrol from midnight till three. Um, and I took this picture of uh, what the landscape looks like near Ypres today. You can still see some of the change to the topography caused by the massive artillery barrages. At one point, I think it was the Battle of Passchendaele, the British put five tons of high explosive on every square meter of soil. Can you imagine how much high explosive it is? And created mud. So that when the Canadians were ordered into Passchendaele, they literally disappeared into mud. Yes, it's a low water table anywhere in, in Belgium, somewhat like Holland. And as the Canadians moved in, they just disappeared. Horses disappeared. Carriages, artillery pieces, just they advanced in. And when the British commander, Smith Dorian, ordered consolidate, and the uh, Canadians respond, you cannot consolidate porridge. And literally entire units just marched into drowning in mud um, because their artillery had churned it up to such an extent, broken the dikes, and everything was so flooded. Now, there's a lot of famous authors that you'll recognize immediately who were involved on the Western Front, like C.S. Lewis, who created the Narnia series. He was fighting on the Eastern Front. J.R.R. Tolkien, who was born in Bloemfontein, who wrote Lord of the Rings, he fought in the Western Front, heavily traumatized there. A.A. Milne, who created Winnie the Pooh, fought in the Western Front as well. Here's a Christmas truce memorial unveiled in Freiligen in France, 11th of November 2008, on the very spot where, on the 25th of December 1914, the Royal Welsh Fusiliers had played football with the German 371 battalion, which the Germans won 2 1. And here's a French report on this uh, as the Germans, the Belgians, the English joined together to commemorate the event. Interestingly enough, I went to an Australian um, battle site where the Australians fought um, the Germans in 1915, the first Australian engagement there. And at the new memorial they had there, um, it was marked, remarked that while the Germans were invited to this opening up of the museum, no British were invited. The Australians deliberately snubbed the British because they believed they were, um, they were used for an unnecessary feint um, to distract attention from another attack and that the British were just sacrificing the colonials. So the Australians would not invite the British to participate, but they invited the Germans to come participate in opening up this new war cemetery that had been discovered in France. So there were military history tours, Christmas truce, 1914, 100th anniversary trips. I had an opportunity of joining in in some of those too, because I was ministering in the area in 2015, 2014. And here in Belgium, at some of the battle sites, they put wreaths and crosses and commemorated, for example, where the Australians had a Christmas truce with the Germans 86 years before. So this is 1999, this was set up. The Cocky Chums Christmas Truce. 1914 to 1999, 85 years, lest we forget. And who should come out of the bushes but the great, 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 great grandchild of Felix, or Nesta. Remember, if you've seen the, the Christmas truce film, Jerks Noel, there's the cat who went between the lines. And it's not a joke, but the French command ordered the cat shot for mutiny and treason because the cat went between the lines, and the cat was sometimes in the German trench, sometimes in the French. And this cat, Felix, was literally sent to death, not that the soldiers could find him. The French soldiers couldn't find him. He said he escaped. So, obviously, nobody was interested in shooting the poor cat. They can tell these are the British trenches. The British trenches were done in, in right angles. The idea of the right angles is if an artillery shell falls in the uh, trench, that doesn't wipe out everyone in the whole trench. That's why you've got to keep having um, alternate changes. But the German trenches were in continuous lines, sort of a more circular, more curved, whereas the British were at right angles. And while the British might have used corrugated iron, the Germans more used wood. Um, obviously, that's better uh, to hold back the earth. And also went to Langemark, which is the German cemetery at Ypres. And they've got a statue for each of the represents the armed forces symbolized there and you might be able to recognize anyone know what uh, Isaiah 43 verse 1 says I've called you by name you are mine never forget some gave uh, all, all gave some some gave all 
And of course, to the British, the 11th of November is the biggest date in the year. It's the most holy date in the British calendar throughout the whole of the British Commonwealth. And they always make a very big thing of 11th of November, which is why when Ian Smith chose to sign and declare Rhodesia independence at the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, 1965, it said the British government at Whitehall was more outraged by the timing of it than the fact of Rhodesian Declaration of Independence. Because what Ian Smith and his government were saying is, we fought for you, you betraying us. By choosing that date, very symbolic, 11th of November, it's when the First World War came to an end, and so it's been Armistice Day ever since to remember those who died in the wars. And of course, Rhodesia mobilised more of its manpower percentage of the population in both the First and Second World War. They actually had to institute conscription in Rhodesia not to get people to call up because virtually everyone volunteered, but to keep some at home. They had to keep some men to hold the forts in Rhodesia and virtually everyone wanted to go off and fight for Britain. But when it came down to it, when we were being attacked by the communists, the British betrayed us and helped our enemies. The moths have the motto, at the going down the sun and in the morning we will remember them. So, in 2014, there was a plethora of memorial services, reenactors, and different units getting together. And of course, the key thing everywhere is the football. And so, the Germans and British units of today, the descendants of the same units that took part in 1914, played soccer matches very seriously. In fact, sport is really an alternative to war. And it's kind of like practice for one, the way how people take the soccer matches and so on. And, well, you've seen uh, with South Africa, rugby victory is taken as one of the greatest events in all of history. So they produced a very nice monument of a German and a British soldier reaching out across no man's land with a soccer ball between them. <coughs> the 2005 French film, Joex Noel, dramatised the Christmas truce in 1914 through the eyes of French, Scottish and German soldiers on the Western Front. It's a, it's a well-made film, I've got a few criticisms of it. My main criticism would be, how on earth did they find a Catholic chaplain for the Scots? And the Scottish are like 90-something percent Presbyterian. A Presbyterian chaplain, you can understand. A, a French Catholic chaplain, you'd understand. But a Scottish Catholic chaplain, where did they find this? And I'm not too sure what the logic was, but anyway, I thought that was very hard to believe that there was a Scottish Catholic chaplain. Uh, but anyway, nor that he'd be representative. It's more likely there were Lutheran on the German side and Church of England on the English side and Presbyterians for the Scottish, Catholic for the French, but that they chose a Catholic priest from Scotland I just thought was very hard to take. There was a very lovely advert produced in 2014 by Sainsbury's, which was faithfully reenacting the whole message of the Christmas truce uh, help, with help by the Royal Legion. And uh, I've got that film to show. Here's just a picture depicting the spirit of Christmas, not that it may, have, may not have happened on Christmas, of German troops helping a Frenchman drowning in the mud at Verdun. And there is this compassion for your enemies that comes through in some wars. It's uniquely Christian. Verdun, the French and the German lost huge amounts of troops in that bloodbath. That's a real meat grinder. And uh, interesting that since... 1919, there have been veterans on both sides that gathered together for commemoration. Now, when I was training, the sergeant major would often say, do this or, or you will be pushing up poppies. If you don't learn this, you'll be pushing up poppies. If you don't watch out, you'll be pushing up poppies. Pushing up poppies was symbolic of you're going to get killed. So, in the very areas where the British army is buried, like virtually the entire British army is buried around Ypres, um, there's 165 war cemeteries for the British Empire troops in and around Ypres, just within 10 kilometers radius around Ypres. 165 cemeteries. I haven't been to all of them, but I've been to the six biggest, and I counted 65 Hammonds just on the walls there. And the fields where they died, there's poppies growing. So you've heard the, the terms about pushing up poppies. Well, that's where it comes from, and that's why they are using poppies on 11th of November. And remember, it's not just soldiers who died. There were a lot of horses, a lot of dogs doing their duty as well. And this was the symbol for 2014, lest we forget. 
And the poppies are very symbolic, and you can see many of the wreaths are made with poppies ever since. And here they were shooting up a lot of poppies at a commemoration service, also 2014. Now, I saw the beginning of this, probably the most amazing memorial uh, to the soldier died in the First World War, the Tower of London. And in an old moat, they had pouring out of the um, turret poppies. Now, the British do know how to organize things. This is a living memorial. They sold these poppies for 25 pounds each. Now, 25 pounds is a lot of money in Rand money. But they're ceramic poppies. So people bought these poppies. Now, you would only get the poppy after 11th of November because it's part of the memorial. So they planted one poppy for every British soldier who died in the First World War. 880,000. That's British and Commonwealth, which included Canadians, Australians, New Zealanders, South Africans, Rhodesians. And this grew and developed, and it was quite an amazing blood-swept lands and seas of red. And you can see summer in the air because, of course, there's the Royal Air Corps as well at the beginning, RAC. And that represents all different arms who would come each night and read out the names. They started on the 4th of August, which is when Britain declared war, which is what turned a European conflict into a world war. And it ended on the 11th of November. And then people could come and collect their poppies that they'd bought. And I don't know what other people were thinking. Um, I was there when they were doing some of the readings that night and heard it at the beginning. I just saw red. You cannot question the dedication, the sincerity of the people who did their duty. But the cursed politicians who sent them there, and for what? For what good reason? An Austrian archduke was murdered by terrorists sponsored by Serbia. Austria's got a good reason to clobber Serbia. Austria's got a beef with Serbia, fair enough. But what's that got to do with Russia? And what's it got to do with France? And what's it got to do with Britain? And why did South African Rhodesia get sucked into this? This was a war that involved initially just Austria and Serbia, a terror-sponsoring state who had assassinated a lot of people. And uh, there was tremendous amounts of terrorism taking place in Europe in the run-up to the First World War. And the communists were inciting this. And how did we end up on the side of the terrorists? And Americans were so blatantly on the side of the terrorists that Woodrow Wilson flew the Serbian flag on the 28th of June every year throughout the war. And that's the anniversary of the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. And he flies the Serbian nationalist flag at the White House, supporting what? The terrorists who started the war that led to millions dying. How did we end up on the terrorist side? And who benefited from the First World War? Just the communists in the Soviet Union, really. So... Uh, this is a very impressive, noble attempt to honour the people who died in the First World War, but I think there needs to be some criticism for the politicians who sent them there. My father was a bombardier, uh, the 25 pounders in the Second World War, North Africa, fought all six years of the Second World War, and he was in the Eighth Army most of the time, North Africa and Italy. So um, my dad told me often of... Uh, his experiences and how he didn't believe what he saw in the films. He said, it just wasn't like that. And these, the films that the Americans depicting that Germans committing atrocities, he said, I don't believe it. I was, you know, don't believe what they said, any of it. He said, Germans were an honorable enemy. Field Marshal Erwin Rommel was an honorable gentleman and there were no atrocities in North Africa. And he didn't believe any of these stories. Now, my grandfather was on the other side. My mother, Ingrid Eva Hammond and her father, my, my grandfather, my opa, uh, he was in the Africa Corps, served under Erwin Rommel. Now, at one point I heard my grandfather's coming to visit, and uh, knowing that my grandfather and my dad fought one another in the Second World War, my brother and I were quite nervous. We thought, you know, what's going to happen? We thought, is there going to be a war taking place in our living room? And incredibly, now I'm showing these pictures just to show a different side, like here's an allied pilot shot down uh, being helped uh, by his enemies and uh, here's some of the people in Eastern Europe welcoming the Wehrmacht for liberating them from the communists from the Soviets, liberating Latvia Lithuania, Estonia um, Ukraine and people seriously enthusiastic so the depiction we've got of the war is not that balanced and uh, it's in fact demonizing the enemy is not fair I've done a lot of missionary work in Eastern Europe 
And everyone I've ministered to, whether you're talking about Romania, Albania, all the way up to Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, Poland, Ukraine, none of those people believe our Western version of the war. They say, what freedom? What democracy? We didn't get any freedom or democracy. You betrayed us. So what do you mean I betrayed you? He said, well, you, you allies, British and Americans. You, you betrayed us. Yalta, Operation Kielhall, Stalin. And uh, you know, these are just some pictures of how the people of Eastern Europe responded. The German army were liberators who saved them from the Soviets or the communists from the mass murdering Stalinist regime. And so these pictures give you a different view. Um, people in, can you see the Latvian flag here? People in Latvia and the Baltic states thrilled to be liberated from the Soviets and really upset to have been betrayed back in the hands of the Soviets after the war. Now, my father here and my mom, um, you know, we often wondered if mom and dad married one another to carry on the Second World War because they would argue often. Um, amongst the things that I'd hear is that uh, my dad would make some comment about how we won the war, and my dad would say, you never won the war, you lost the war. The Americans had to come in and rescue you. And uh, then sometimes plates would fly across the room. Well, here's my granddad coming to visit. So my opa, when he came to visit, we thought there might be hostility. My dad welcomed, and my father was a stiff Englishman, no emotion, no, um, I mean, he wasn't a warm, huggy person. But he embraced my opa like his best friend. There was something between the Africa Corps and the Eighth Army. Well, there's a book that I read a while ago, Higher Call, absolutely amazing. A true story of uh, two airmen, uh, one American, the other German. Charlie Brown, that's his real name, an American B-17 bomber pilot, and Franz Stagler, a German fighter ace. So the American 379th Bomber Squadron bombed Bremen uh, just before Christmas, 20th of December, 1943. And your older pub, which is the B-17 run by um, Charlie Brown, got badly shot up near Bremen and uh, in, in, uh, uh, over the skies of Bremen and uh, the aircraft was so badly damaged, well, as they were hobbling home, trying to find their way home, they suddenly froze and saw uh, the most frightening scene. It's a nightmare, the co-pilot said. He's going to destroy us. A German Messerschmitt ME-109 fighter was cruising just a few feet away from the wingtip. And it was five days before Christmas, 1943. The fighter had closed in on a crippled B-17 for a kill. And the B-17 bomber pilot was Charles Brown, 21-year-old West Virginia farmer. His aircraft was shot to pieces, his, half his crew was wounded, his tail gunner was dead, blood frozen over the rear machine guns, and uh, the entire plane was just holding together by a few strings and wires and about to collapse. But when Browner's co-pilot, Spencer Pinky Luke, looked at the fighter pilot, the German didn't pull the trigger. He nodded at Brown and said, escorted him out of Germany. And what happened next? One of the most remarkable acts of chivalry. He actually saluted him and pointed him towards, uh, showed him the way towards Britain because obviously their control panels had been shot. They didn't know which way to go. They were heading deeper into Germany when he encountered them and he led them back so they could get back to Britain where uh, the airfield was. And so this was the beginning of an amazing story. Years later, Brown would track down his erstwhile enemy for a reunion that reduced both men to tears. His encounter with a German fighter pilot is told in this book, A Higher Call, which I hope is going to be turned to a movie one of these days. The book explains how this aerial encounter reverberated in both men's lives for more than 50 years. The war left them in turmoil. When they found each other, they found peace. And their story is extraordinary, but it's not unique. British and German troops gathered for post-war reunions, some vacation together after both world wars. The son of Erwin Rommel became a best friend to the son of uh, Field Marshal Montgomery. And that's just one of many strange things. Douglas Bader's one of the greatest British fighter aces. And Adolf Garland was the top German fighter ace who was in charge of the fighter squadron. Here's Adolf Garland with Douglas Bader after he'd been shot down, taken him into captivity. The Luftwaffe would routinely uh, try and find the pilots they'd shot down in order to protect them because the local people might be quite hostile, especially to bomber pilots. And so the Luftwaffe felt that to protect these men from any mistreatment on the ground, get them to a Luftwaffe. Um, prison camp where they would protect them and ensure they were treated well. And so 
this is Adolf Berlin's plan. He got over 100, uh, over 105 uh, air victories, and he had uh, Mickey Mouse as his symbol. And this is signed by Douglas Bader and by Adolf Gorland, uh, who fought one another in the Battle of Britain and became friends. And in fact, Douglas Bader had a tin leg because he had lost his legs in a car accident before the war. And when his plane was shot down, his legs got trapped and he had to unstrap his legs to be able to bail out. And if he couldn't have unstrapped his legs, he might have gone down with the plane. So that was a good thing. But now he had no legs. So Adolf Gorland organized for the British to come and drop new tin legs for him. And which they did. And uh, then Douglas Bader promptly escaped, and then he was captured again and again, and they threatened to take his legs away if he kept trying to escape. But of course, that was part of his job, was to try and escape. Well, I remember as a youngster reading this book, The First and the Last, Adolf Garland's Story of the War, and who wrote the foreword? Douglas Bader. And later, when Douglas Bader produced his book, Adolf Garland wrote the foreword for his book. Absolutely amazing. Adolf Garland and Douglas Bader became best of friends after the war. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. Just absolutely incredible. On land, they were heroes. In the air, they were aces. And the Battle of Britain film, both of them were advisors on different sides for um, the maker of the film to try and be sure it was technically accurate. Very hard to get an accurate war film, but this was one where they actually did try. So Franz Stiegler uh, was the man who... He had not only fought in the Battle of Britain and was a friend of Adolf Garland, uh, but he had been in North Africa as part of Rommel's famed Luftwaffe. He had shot up a lot of British and Rhodesian and South African uh, planes in uh, North Africa and <coughs> over Malta as well. He had shot up a lot of bombers. He was a major um, ace. And so the day came, three days before Christmas, he is near Bremen, and he saw this B-17 bomber come flying over and... Now, Franz Steigler was not just any kind of fighter. He was heading towards the Knight's Cross, Germany's highest award for valor, which you got when you shot down a large number of enemy planes, something like 40. But um, revenge, not honors, what drove Lieutenant Steigler to jump into his fighter plane on that 20th of December, 1943. Steigler was driven by something deeper than glory. His older brother, August, was a fellow Luftwaffe pilot who had been killed early in the war. Um, August had been a night fighter flying the Junker 88. American pilots had killed Steigler's comrades and they were bombing his country cities. His brother, uh, August, who um, died early in the war uh, flying these sort of planes uh, to deal with bombers, with the night fighting bombs. The, night, uh, the bombers were, of course, turning cities like Cologne into rubble like this with these thousand bomber raids. So you can imagine there was a lot of sense of anger, we've got to protect our cities and we've got to get these bombers. So Steigler has really shot down two B-17s that day. He's refueling, reloading his gun, standing near his fighter at a German airbase. When he heard this bomber's engine, looked up, saw B-17 flying so low it looked like it was going to land. As the bomber disappeared from view behind the trees, Steigler saluted the ground crew, took it uh, off in his plane and went in pursuit. He rose high, he met the bomber, <coughs> maneuvered to attack from behind, climbed behind the bomber, squinted into his gun sight, placed his hand on the trigger, but when he was about to fire, he hesitated. He was baffled. Nobody in the bomber had fired back at him. And he looked at the red gunner, and he looked close, and he could see the white fleece collar soaked with blood. He craned his neck to see the rest of the bomber. The, the rear gunner was dead, and the skin had been peeled away by shells. The guns were knocked out. He could see the men huddled inside, tending to the wounds of other crewmen. And he nudged his plane along, the bomber's wings locked eyes to the pilot, whose eyes were wide open in shock and horror. He put his hand over the cross he kept around his neck under his flight jacket. He prayed for a moment, then he eased his index figure off the trigger. He couldn't shoot. It would be dishonorable to shoot at a crippled enemy aircraft, even if it was a bomber. He was not only motivated by vengeance, he also lived by code of honor. He could trace his family's ancestry back to the knights of the 16th century. He had once studied theology. He recalled the voice of his commanding officer when he was in the Africa Corps in North Africa, who said, you follow the rules of war for you, not for your enemy. You fight by rules to keep your humanity. It's not that the other man deserves it, but if you lower yourself to the enemy, uh, you become like them. And he said, if I catch any of you shooting an enemy uh, pilot in a parachute, uh, I will kill you myself. So uh, his officer commander of Yoga um, 44 was not interested in any idea of you having a vengeful mentality. You treat your enemy well. 
So alone with the crippled bomber, Steigler changed his mission. He nodded at the American pilot and began flying in formation so German anti-aircraft gunners on the ground wouldn't shoot down a slow-moving bomber. There was a lot of anti-aircraft guns, 88s, along the Baltic Sea, and he had to fly over them to get back to England, to the to North Sea. So by treating it like a captured, and sometimes they might have a captured plane that they take in or even using for other purposes. So by flying in formation, he protected it from getting shot at. And he escorted the bomber over the North Sea, took a last look at the American pilot, saluted him, peeled his fight away and returned to Germany once he assured the man was pointed in the right direction. Good luck, Steigler said. You're in God's hands. As he watched a German Messerschmitt fighter peel away that December day, Lieutenant Charlie Brown wasn't thinking of the philosophical connection between the enemies. He was thinking of survival. And there's some interesting sketches made since, like when the Americans um, came out to fight as an escort and back into Britain as he uh, came over the North Sea. He flew back to his base, landed safely with barely any fuel left. And as his bomber came to stop, he leaned back in a chair and put a hand over the pocket Gideon's Bible he had in his flight jacket. Then he sat in silence. Here's a sum of his crew. His commander was left Colonel Morris Preston, um, who strictly forbade him to ever talk about this incident. It was considered dangerous for morale. He didn't want any of his men getting the same idea of being merciful to uh, the enemies or anything like that, so he uh, forbade him to ever talk about it. And here's some of the, the crew and the replacements after they had lost so many on that one bombing raid. And after 25 raids, they were allowed to go home. Of course, the Luftwaffe never had such a privilege. They had to just keep fighting year after year. But the Americans, 25 bombing missions, and then you could go home. So he's celebrating when he got to that 25th mission. Brown flew more missions. He got married. He had two daughters. Supervised foreign aid for the U.S. State Department during the Vietnam War, retired to Florida. But later in life, the encounter with the German pilot began to annoy him, and he started having nightmares. But in his dream, there'd be no act of mercy. And he had wakened just before his bomber crashed. So Brown took on a new mission. He is going to find this German pilot. Who was he? Why did he save my life? Now, Steigler was an unusual pilot. He was not just a great fighter ace from Messerschmitt. He was one of the first jet fighter pilots. He was part of the Jagen 44, which um, flew the Messerschmitt 262s, the first fighter bombers in history. And this was the greatest technology in air power seen to that date. And uh, these were phenomenal operating machines. If they had had enough of them, enough fuel, it could have changed the course of the war at one stage. But they came out a bit late, and when they did, they didn't have enough fuel. And so many times these measurements were sitting on the airstrip for lack of fuel while the bombers were turning cities like Dresden into ashes. But he learned how to fly these measurement 262s and there were no other pilots at that stage who had had this experience. So they, this is part of the uh, Jagen 44. This is the, they were all Knights Cross, top fighter pilots, some of the best fighter pilots around. And uh, they were the elite group who were pioneering these uh, Meshmer 262s, including Adolf Garland and uh, Lutzo. I mean, these are all legends, um, some of the greatest fighter aces in history. Hundreds of air victories each, all with Knights Crosses. And uh, Steinhoff got badly burned in a crash with a Meshmer 262. And he was horribly burned, but he became the man who started the Luftwaffe in the, free, in the Federal Republic of Germany later, during NATO. And Major Gert Barkhorn is, I think, the second greatest air ace of all time. Just after Hartmann, he got over 300 air victories on the Eastern Front, mostly. And he trained under Steigler. Steigler trained this chair. But the 262s were phenomenal. They had the ability to go through the B-17s um, and B-25s and shoot them up and knock them down. And these are just some action shots taken of Messerschmitts shooting up these bombers. This was the one plane that could have saved the German cities from being incinerated by the thousand bomber raids. But they got them a bit late, and when they got them, they didn't have enough fuel for enough of them. <coughs> so Steigl had the opportunity at the tail end of the war of breaking up some of these massive thousand bomber raid um, flying fortresses and shooting them up and <coughs> taking them down. But to fly these rockets, uh, very unsafe at this stage, and... They didn't have any of the safety mechanisms like the ejector seats that we have now. Um, but 
amazing story. So on the 18th of January 1990, Brown received a letter and um, he got a message from uh, Franz Steigler. He attended Pound's reunions and shared a story and then he placed an ad in a German newsletter for former Luftwaffe pilots retelling a story and asking if anyone knows this pilot. And then he gets this letter, 1990, Dear Charles, all these years I wondered what happened to B-17. Did she make it or not? Now, to Steigler had left Germany after the war, moved to Vancouver in British Columbia, Canada, and he became a prosperous businessman there. Now retired, Steigler told Brown he'd be in Florida in summer. It would be nice to meet you and talk about our encounter. And Brown was so excited he couldn't wait to see Steigler, so he called directory assistance for Vancouver, found out if there's a front Steigler number, dialed the number, and spoke to him directly. And it was a very emotional experience. And Brown knew he had to do more, so he wrote letters to him. Thank you, thank you, thank you on behalf of my surviving crew members and their families. This appears totally inadequate. But the two pilots would meet again in a lobby of a Florida hotel. One of Brown's friends was there to record the union, and you can actually see the video of it online too. They both looked like retired businessmen, um, but they had a light, jovial tone. But the mood then changed when someone asked Steigler, what do you think about Brown? And his square jaw tightened and he fought back tears saying, I love you, Charlie. Steigler had lost his brother, he'd lost his family, his friends, his country. He was virtually exiled by his countrymen after the war. It was very unpopular to be Luftwaffe uh, in the country after the war because people were blaming him. Why did you not protect us in our cities? You know, our cities turned to rubble, 63 cities incinerated by the thousand bomber raids. And so the fighter pilots were treated very badly. There were 28,000 pilots who fought for the Luftwaffe, only 1,200 survived. They fought to the end, and the Americans, it turned out, Charlie Brown brings out that the orders at the end was, if you see a German pilot in a parachute, you shoot him in, in, in a parachute. And so the German Air Force had the rule, you don't shoot enemy pilots in parachutes. The American Air Force had the order, you do shoot any enemy pilot in a parachute. He said, these are the best of the best, the ones who survived this long, we can't afford them to get, survive and get up in the air against us again. So they had an actual policy in the US Air Force to shoot any pilot in a parachute. And so only 1,200 survived of the 28,000 fighters. So Brown and Steigler became friends. They took fishing trips together. They flew cross-country to each other's homes. They took road trips together. They shared their stories in schools and veterans' reunions. And their wives became friends. And Brown's daughter said, her father would worry about Steigler's health and they constantly checked up on him. It wasn't just for show, they really did feel for each other and they talked about once a week. Well, as the friendship deepened, something else happened. The nightmares went away, they said. Now, Brown wrote a letter of thanks to Steigler, but one day he showed the extent of his gratitude. He organized a reunion of surviving crew members along with the extended families, invited Steigler as a guest of honor. And during the reunion, they played a video of the face of the people that now lived, children, grandchildren, relatives, all because of Stagler's act of chivalry. And Stagler watched the film from a seat of honor, and everyone was crying, not just him. Stagler and Brown died within months of each other in 2008. Stagler was 92 and Brown was 87. They had started off as enemies, they became friends, and then a lot more. And the author of this book, Makos, discovered what was left by accident one night at Brown's house, he's poking through his library and he came across a book on German fighter jets. Steigler had given the book to Brown. They were both country boys and they loved to read about planes. Makros opened the book and saw an inscription Steigler had written to Brown. In 1940, I lost my only brother as a night fighter. On 20th of December, four days before Christmas, I had the chance to save a B-17 from a destruction. A plane so plainly damaged, it was a wonder she is still flying. The pilot, Charlie Brown, is for me as precious as my brother was. Thanks, Charlie, your brother, Franz. I mean, they went through the worst of the worst in the war and some of the most incredible actions. And at the end, they had more love for the enemy than they had for their own friends, family, and countrymen. Now, that's what I saw with my father, too. My father had more love for my opa, who was his enemy, than he had for his... I never saw expressions of... of emotion from my dad about anything in our family. But the greatest ex um, affection I ever saw him express was to his old enemy of the Africa Corps. So this will make a great film when they ever bring a high court to film. 
If they could have known what would become of their countries, they would not have fought against each other, they would have fought side by side. No more brother wars. Next time we fight side by side. We have real enemies, like those who want to behead us. While your children are learning to tolerate their children, these children are training to kill your children. And the fact is, Islam is teaching their kids to kill Jews and Christians and Kafirs, <laughs> infidels. For centuries, Europe has seen their biggest enemy as Islam and need to fight Islam and to defend Europe from Islam. And there have been huge battles, like Constantinople. And it was considered a sacred duty of Europe to defend Europe from Islam. And now, they're inviting Muslims into Europe. You just think what the Polish did to rescue Vienna from the great siege of Vienna in 1683. And what is the West doing? The child-free life. Having it own means not having children. And the new Europeans, waves of immigrants are reshaping the continent. We're not having enough children in Europe, so we need to import them from the Middle East. And the very Muslims who are considered the threat of Christendom are now being called the new Europe. Diversity makes us stronger. Well, it's interesting, it doesn't make us safer because police used to look like this on the left and now the police look like this on the right. Something's changed. And this is what a Christmas market looks like in France these days. They've got to have military patrols because there's been so much terrorism targeting Christmas markets. Now, these are rapists in Britain who were protected because the police did not want to prosecute them because they didn't want to be called racist. So the British police, child protection services, ignored a million rapes and child abuse cases over a period of decades, and a scandal came out. They, none of them wanted to prosecute because they didn't want to be called racist and Islamophobic and so on. And so over a million British children were abused over a period of decades, and no, neither the police, nor the Scotland Yard, nor uh, the child protection service were willing to take on these cases because they didn't want to be called racist. And so they let their children be abused to that extent. And now this is the carousel in Britain, the store of modern childhood. You can get stab-proof vests for ages 11 to 18. You see how diversity is our strength? How wonderful. Your children can get stab-proof vests, stab vests for Christmas. Because they are Islamizing the continent of Europe. Poland's resisting, and some places you'll see, like in Switzerland, no more mosques. Expel the Islamists. Europe's got a heritage of resistance, of crusaders. There used to be people who would fight to protect Europe from, from Islam, and now they let them come in, and the Christian heritage of Europe, which made Europe strong, made Europe the greatest continent, greatest civilization history, is being rejected. People are turning their back on Christianity and embracing something that is just um, suicidal. But if these guys can get along, maybe you can make it through dinner with your relatives. It remains an extraordinary testament to the power of the gospel that during such a terrible time of world war, soldiers of so many armies on opposite sides could stop fighting, come out of their trenches and embrace their enemies in honour of the Prince of Peace. I've got the newsletter here that's on the table, Help Yourself, where I wrote on the Christmas truce uh, when we had the 100th anniversary, some great testimonies that you could share with others. And let's remind people to put Christ back into Xmas. The wreath for Christmas should remind us of the crown of thorns. Tis the season, yes, but tis the reason. He came to die. Wise men still seek him. Let's tell people to remember whose birthday we're celebrating. And Isaiah 9 verse 6 7 is my favorite Christmas verse. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Now a lot of people like the a child is born, they just don't like the son is given part. Child is born, a baby in a manger, that's not too threatening, but... Don't start speaking to us about the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Mighty God. I mean, that's a bit too invasive, too threatening. But this is what will save our civilization. So you can find these articles on our website as well. There's so much of our history and heritage and some of our architecture which just points to the importance of Christ and Christmas. It should be the greatest season of the year. Coming up, starting on the 5th of January, we've got the Biblical Worldview Summit. 
just to remind folks, it'll be starting here and we'll be conducting it if anyone's interested in either joining in part of the program. And then it continues into the Great Commission course through to the 24th of January. So it's a, an intensive three-week time of, of uh, training and we often have visitors coming from foreign fields, as far afield as New Zealand, Canada, Europe, all over Africa, to these different courses. So do remember and pray for us in this. Of course, we've got Dave the Covenant coming up, and we should be remembering about our heritage, and Dave the Covenant's got a great message in and of itself. Any questions at all on Christmas in times of war? remember speaking with Ian Smith, having tea with him quite a few times, and him saying, if we could have known then what we know now, we would have been fighting on the Eastern Front against a real enemy. And uh, just such a tragedy that the Britain we fought for betrayed us when we were fighting communism. But as he said, we wouldn't have even had to fight the communists if, um, if we hadn't won the Second World War. If we had we'd lost the Second World War, we'd be better off. But he would still have survived. South Africa would have survived. Britain would be Britain. Um, Europe would be Europe. But the destruction of the world's come from us saving the Soviet Union and betraying the whole of Eastern Europe into the hands of the Soviets. And from that has come the revolutionary mess that we see threatening Europe and Rhodesia and South Africa to this day. So he said it would have been better for us if we hadn't been involved in the First and the Second World War or if we had lost the First and Second World War. We would have saved our country because we were on the wrong side, fighting to help the terrorists in the First World War of Serbia and to save the Soviet Union in the Second World War. He said we thought we were fighting for Western Christian civilization democracy, but it turned out we were actually fighting to save Stalin. And that wasn't our intention, that wasn't what the men in the air or in uniform were thinking, but that's what Winston Churchill and Roosevelt were doing. So Ian Smith came to the conclusion that actually we would have been better off either losing the war and not getting involved in the first place, or fighting on the Eastern Front against a real enemy, destroy the Soviet Union. And he said, we were wrong to fight against the Boers in the Anglo-Boer War. We were wrong to fight in the First World War, we were wrong to fight in the Second World War, but we were right to resist the Soviets and to declare independence in 1965. And that's an interesting perspective of a person who spent all six years of the Second World War as a Royal Rhodesian Air Force pilot, flying hurricanes and spitfires. So it just makes us think again um, when you consider what's happened here, but I, I like the idea that no more brother wars. If we fight in the future, let's be side by side, not against one another. Any other questions, comments? <laughs>